study of Luke, and we'll, we'll finish the eighth chapter, the third in a series of, of Jesus' powerful miracles over nature and the spiritual world. And today, we're going to see Christ's authority over disease and death. Christ's authority over disease and death. Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 56. I'd like to begin just by reading our text for this morning. <clears throat> Now when Jesus had returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. There came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. And she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately, her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? But when all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only Believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat, and her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to your word, we need eyes of faith. And Lord, in a passage like this, that so clearly demonstrates the glorious power, the compassion, the life-giving source of all life. Well, we just pray that you would give us eyes to see what is there. Don't let us be the thorny soil. Don't let us be the rocky soil. Let us hear with faith and let it bear much fruit in our lives. So Lord, give the increase. Open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your law. Show us Christ high and lifted up as he is. And grant us that we might believe and trust in this great Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, for those of you who've been following along in our study of Luke, you'll know that starting in chapter 8, Luke began a new section of the book. We know that because chapter 8 begins with one of his sort of summary statements. Soon afterwards, he went through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him. This is similar, in essence, to the way he introduced Jesus' public ministry in chapter 4. 
Verse 14, Jesus returning from the temptation in the power of the Spirit went to Galilee and a report about him went through all the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. And when we asked why, why did Luke restart, make a break here, the answer was the introduction of a secondary theme in Jesus' ministry. In the first introductory phrase in chapter four, Jesus goes to the synagogue in his hometown and he opens the scroll of Isaiah and he reads Isaiah 61 and he identifies himself as the one who would fulfill that. And specifically, he identifies that he is the one whom the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So I am the one who is anointed by the Spirit, Jesus says, and I am the one sent with a message for the poor, for the blind, for the captives. It's, it's, it's good news. It's gospel. I'm here to, to preach good news to them and to accomplish their freeing. And that truly is what Jesus does, and he goes and he teaches. But in chapter 8, another, another theme, another purpose of his ministry is introduced, and he cites another passage in Isaiah. And when we looked at the, the message on the purpose of the parables, Jesus says after giving the parable of the sower, his disciples in verse 9 of chapter 8 came to him and said, what did this mean? And in verse 10, he said to them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. What Jesus is saying, similar to Isaiah's ministry where God sent him not just to proclaim good news, but also to close the eyes of the blind that those people who, because of taking idols into their hearts, people who because of their hardness of heart, Isaiah was sent to sort of finish the job as it were. And Jesus, inciting this, introduces this second theme. He's here to preach good news to the poor. He's here, as it were, to call his sheep. But he's also here to blind the eyes of those who cannot see. And in the parables that follow, what becomes of critical importance is how we respond to the light light that Jesus brings. He, he gives the example of the soils and how they respond to his word. In verse 16, no one after lighting a lamp covers it or puts a jar on it. So what are you going to do with this light? Will you respond to it? If you, a helpful way of thinking about it is heat either melts and softens like wax or it hardens like clay. And, and the truth and the light and the life that Jesus is bringing will have one of those two results Either people's hearts will be softened and their eyes will be opened and they will see and they will love and they will respond and they will bear fruit or Jesus' light will harden their hearts into stone. And Jesus will have that polarizing effect. All these crowds who are gathered around him, we know that by the end of this book, only a handful of people will be true disciples and the rest of the nation, including many of these people, will be crying out, away with him, crucify, crucify. We have no king but Caesar. Away with this man. And Jesus here is making it clear he's aware of that. It's not as though his mission failed. Things were looking good. He had all these crowds. He had this momentum, and then, uh uh-oh, something went wrong. Jesus, before any real opposition arises in Luke's gospel, is telling his apostles, I'm fully aware that I have this secondary theme in my ministry of judgment, of blinding. And then he warns them how they are to respond. And then, after that sequence finishes, we get a series of miracles, and that's what we've been looking in. The first is the calming of the storm as Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee, 
and a mighty tempest arises. And Jesus, with the power of his word, rebukes the wind, rebukes the waves, and immediately they're silenced, and immediately they're calm. And the disciples are left with a question in verse 25 of chapter 8. Who then is this? And that's really the question Luke has set out to answer in the coming narratives. We, the next encounter, where Jesus demonstrates his power over the spiritual world and demons, we get an answer to the disciples' questions. They're still trying to figure out who then is this. The demoniac knows in verse 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have we to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Questions in the disciples' mouths, as demoniac knows. And we're going to look today at Jesus' power, not just over nature and the wind and the waves, not just over the spiritual world, but over disease and death. And then in chapter 9, we're going to see not only does Jesus have this power, but he has power to grant, power to give as he sends his apostles out. And then we're going to see in the feeding of the 5,000 that Jesus sustains life. And Jesus has the power to not only create life, but to sustain it. And all of that leads up to, and Luke has arranged this very, very wisely, very cleverly, the question in the disciples' mouths in the boat, who then is this, is answered in chapter 9, verse 20, when Jesus asks them who, who he is. Who do people say that I am? In verse 19, they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but... Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. So that's sort of the narrative arc of where we're at. The disciples moving along in their understanding of who Jesus is. Luke giving us this, this powerful display of Jesus' authority and power in every sphere, whether it's the sphere of nature, whether it's the spiritual realm, whether it's disease or even death itself. And so this morning, the third then of these miracles, we see Christ's authority over disease and death. And, and Luke, in telling this narrative, intertwines two stories. There's two narrative threads here, aren't there? And it starts with Jairus coming to Jesus, falling down in front of him. And then on his way to Jairus' house, he's interrupted by this woman, and then that gets resolved, and we pick back up with Jairus. And in doing, weaving these two stories together, we're going to see Christ's compassion and his power and his authority over disease and death. And, and we're going to see the greatness of our Savior. So let's, let's dive in in our first point, verses 40 to 42a. That's because the, whoever put the verses there didn't do a terribly good job of the paragraph break. And look at Jesus' great compassion. And that's what I want to challenge you is what we're going to see about our Savior here. And we're start with Jesus' great compassion. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him returned from where? Well, from going across the Sea of Galilee. In other words, these events that started with the calming of the storm are meant to be understood as happening really kind of in one day. In fact, some, some commentators have referred to this as Jesus' long day. Now, we don't know when it started. If you go back to verse 22, it just starts with one day. So, so Luke has broken the narrative flow, broken the, the chronology. One day he got into a boat with his disciples. But from that getting into the boat to his disciples, we're to understand this is an unbroken chain of events. And presumably Jesus is already tired because he falls asleep in the bottom of the boat. And he gets a little nap. 
and his disciples wake him up, and he rebukes the wind and the waves, and then they land on the opposite side of the, of the Sea of Galilee in Gentile territory near the Decapolis, and immediately, and the way Luke tells the story, his foot touches ground, the demoniac sees him and runs, throws himself on the ground in front of him, and, and he deals with him. And Jesus terrifies thousands of demons. That's the power of our Savior. There's no contest, there's no struggle. They just raise up the white flag and surrender. We, we give up. Please, please don't punish us. Please don't torment us. Don't mistake that for repentance. But they're terrified of him and recognize that he is an overwhelming power against them. Thousands of demons. A legion is 5,600 Roman soldiers. And we'd assume there's at least one demon per pig. And Mark tells us there's 2,000 pigs. So 2,000 plus demons inhabit this man. And they, in one voice, surrender. Unconditional surrender. And beg three times of him. But then when the townspeople come to, 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 to see this, and because, in part, because 2,000 pigs ran into the sea and were killed, and we considered that the, the economic value of 2,000 pigs in today's market in Iowa would be somewhere between a quarter and a half a million dollars. We can think of all the other attendant jobs, the, the, the herdsmen, the people who fed them, the people who butchered them, the people who sold them. This, this would have an impact on the local economy. And, as Jesus does his first real outreach into Gentile territory, how do the people respond when the light comes? Verse 36, those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And then all the people of the surrounding region of the Gerizines asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. Jesus sets sail, encounters a storm, lands, sets foot, immediately this encounter with the demoniac happens, and there might have been a couple hours interval, potentially even to instruct this man, because when the crowds return, when the crowds show up, he's sitting at Jesus' feet, and it would take them time to go back to the town, tell everyone, and come back. But then Jesus gets back in the boat, and he goes. And so we're picking the story up then. This is an unbroken chain. This is a long day. He's, he's calmed a storm. He's rebuked thousands of demons. He's made a new disciple and commissioned him to preach in his hometown. And so Jesus then sends him home, because remember, he wants to travel with Jesus. And in verse 39, what does Jesus say to him? Return to your home. So he sends the man home, and then Jesus himself turns around, and he returns. And that's crucial in getting the contrast. How, how did these Gentiles respond? What they said was, could, could you please turn that light out? Maybe take a bushel basket and put it over it. Could you just go somewhere else, please? This is kind of freaking us out. We're kind of scared. In fact, this notion of fear quenching faith is crucial. We're going to see it in this passage. What is, Jairus, what is Jesus going to say to Jairus upon hearing that his daughter is dead? Do not fear, only believe. We're going to see that fear has the potential, when it's not the fear of the Lord, but fear of other things, of, of eating, squelching, crushing faith. And even the woman with the flow of blood is the fear of publicly coming out and acknowledging what she did. Well, these people are afraid, and they say, please go away. Now, in contrast to that, Jesus returns. What do we have? The crowd welcomed him. They were waiting for him. It's quite a, quite a contrast to the way he was treated in the Gerizines. Now, ultimately, I'm not sure if this crowd is, is ultimately a good sign for the crowd, but it's better than the Gentiles, and they welcome him, but we're going to soon see this crowd not as simply as a blessing, but almost as a detriment. It's going to be pressing in on him. 
And when he gets there, back to Galilee, a ruler of the synagogue named Jairus comes and falls down at his feet. Now this is the next in a, in a line of people who've been falling down at Jesus' feet. It started back in chapter 5 when Peter, in his boat after the miraculous catch, falls down in front of Jesus, says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And then the leper falling down at his feet, the demoniac falling down at Jesus' feet, and now Jairus falling down, humbling himself. He's a synagogue ruler. If you remember, Israel had one temple in Jerusalem, but all of the towns would have synagogues where the people would gather, and they would read the the scroll of the law. They would worship the Lord on the Sabbath and on other days. And here's a man in charge of that. He'd be some man of some means, some respect in the community. I'm only highlighting that because the contrast between him, Jairus, this respectable, upright, prominent man in the community, and the woman for who for 12 years has had a flow of blood and been ceremonially unclean and exiled from the religious life couldn't really be much greater. And Jairus comes, and he humbles himself, and he throws himself on the ground at Jesus' feet, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. Why? Why is this man so desperate? Well, we're told. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. This is, this is a similar, in fact, to the, the widow whom Jesus felt compassion for back in chapter 7. Jesus encountered the funeral procession her only son, and this is a father with an only daughter, and she's 12, and in Jewish life, 12, she's just about to enter into womanhood. She's just about to enter into that. This little girl who's just about to to enter into that part of life, she's his only daughter, and she's dying. I think those of us with kids can, can understand his desperation. And he hears that Jesus has returned, and he comes out, and he falls down his feet and implores him, And what I want you to see is just the compassion of our Savior. You can imagine how you might be tired, I might be tired. This has been a long day for Jesus. Luke doesn't even tell us Jesus agrees. He assumes it. Look at how the next phrase starts. As Jesus went, Luke has just assumed that, of course, from what we've seen about who Jesus is, of course he's going to go. He's imploring Jesus, and as Jesus went, And what we're going to see at the end of this story is that this miracle is done primarily as an act of compassion. Jesus is going to tell Jairus and his wife not to tell anybody. In other words, some of Jesus' miracles are done intentionally to to get publicity, intentionally, as it were, to show his messianic credentials to the peoples. In many respects, that was the way the, the miracle of raising the widow's son functioned. In fact, it was the report of that notable miracle that got back to John the Baptist in prison and his disciples, and that set up John the Baptist sending them back. And and so it, it functioned to get the word out. But this miracle isn't serving that function. This is a miracle where Jesus instructs the parents. He, he makes sure that it's, it's private. He only brings in Peter, James, and John and the parents and then tells them not to tell anyone. This is purely our Savior having compassion. We, we saw that back in, in chapter 7 with the widow's son. I love this. As he drew near the gates of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carrying out, carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow And a considerable crowd from the town was with them. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion. Here's Jesus. He's he's just been rejected in the Gerizines. He's just had a long day. He's got a crowd pressing in on him. 
And here comes yet another person who needs something. And Luke doesn't even tell us that Jesus agrees. He just assumes that the narrative just moves on to, well, of course, this is the heart of our Savior, and he goes. Jesus goes with him. And then the narrative gets interrupted. So we see Jesus' great compassion. Next, we see Jesus' cleansing holiness. Jesus' cleansing holiness. And here's where the interruption occurs. As they went, the people pressed in on him. And that word for pressing in on him is the exact same word used earlier in the chapter to describe the thorny soil where the thorns press in and choke out the word. It's, it's just meant to give us echoes of that. This, this, is, this is tight. This is uncomfortable. This is unpleasant. And as they're pressing in, the woman comes onto the scene. A desperate woman is healed by a touch of faith. A desperate woman is healed by a touch of faith. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, we don't, we don't probably get the significance of that. I mean, maybe if you had uh, a medical problem for 12 years, you might be able to sympathize with that. It's frustrating. It's discouraging. In Jewish society, this was devastating. Let me, let me read to you what the law says about a woman or a man with a discharge like this. Leviticus 15, verse 25 to 30. And I want you to just hear how many times the word impurity and uncleanness is mentioned. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness. You get that? For every day that she continues, she continues in uncleanness, as in the days of her impurity. She shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies all the days of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until evening. But as she is cleansed of her discharge, she shall count for herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean. So get this. This woman is unclean. Anything she sits on is unclean. Anything anyone touches that she's sat on, they're unclean. This woman in Jewish society is a walking contagion. She is not allowed to go to the temple. She is not allowed to approach God. She is not allowed to enter into that system. She is ceremonially unclean clean. And anyone who knows about her condition is going to not want to touch her, because who knows whether you get contaminated. Now, it says here specifically in Leviticus, you've got to touch things she sits on. But you can imagine this sort of keeping her at arm's distance, because you accidentally touched the wrong thing that she's touched. You're unclean until evening. You're outside of the society. This woman, in other words, is estranged from the community, from the religious life, this woman is an outcast in that sense. And we know that she wanted to change that because she spent all her money trying to fix it. Goes on to say that. For 12 years, ceremony unclean, but destitute from years of seeking a cure. She had spent all her living on physicians. You can just think of the years and the years, hoping maybe I'm going to find a cure. Maybe this, is, this remedy is going to work. Maybe this natural oil or, or whatever the thing is they had in their day is going to work. 12 years, 12 years where people don't even want to touch her, 12 years where she can't approach God in the temple. 
And here she is, Jesus is on the land, there's a a pressing crowd and she thinks she might have her chance. Because normally if people would see her coming, you'd imagine they'd, they'd stay away. With a crowd this deep and this thick, she comes up behind, clearly intending to be unseen. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately, her discharge of blood ceased. Pressing through the crowd, she touched his garment and she is immediately healed. Immediately. What all the doctors in Israel could not do, Jesus did. And we're going to see Jesus did without even knowing it. She's completely healed and cured by touching Jesus. Now, we read the story and we think, okay, that's the miracle. That's the healing. That is not the healing. That is not the miracle. Point B, a loving Savior completes her healing and finishes the miracle. So Jesus is going to Jairus' house. There's urgency. The daughter is dying. She's not just sick. She's not just ill. She's dying. And as they're moving along in this tight, pressing crowd, Jesus stops and says, who is it that's touched me? I think we can sympathize a little bit with Peter's exasperation. Now notice this. When all denied it, Peter said, All denied it, including this woman. Initially, this woman denied with everyone else touching Jesus. And I think we can understand why. But what could possibly be the outcome if if you're an unclean person and you touch somebody? Well, you could be accused of malice. You could be accused of, of, of intentionally making someone else unclean. Here's this respected rabbi who's so powerful and great that Jairus, a synagogue leader, falls down in front of him and you have the audacity to go and without even letting him know that it's happened, making him unclean. He might try to approach God in the temple not knowing that he's been made unclean and what, what might happen to him because you've done this thing. You, you could imagine perhaps some sort of rebuke like that. What are you doing here in a crowd where everyone who's rubbing up against you and everyone who's, who's touching you without even knowing it is becoming unclean? I mean, maybe she's imagining some sort of rebuke like that. I think we can sympathize with it to some degree. And so initially when Jesus asks the question, she, along with everyone else, denies it. Then Peter, as he's wont to do, speaks up and puts his foot in his mouth. He did the same thing back on the boat when Jesus told them to cast the nets to the other side. Lord, we've been fishing all night. We haven't caught anything. But okay, here Peter says, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you, which is to say, what do you mean someone's, everyone's touching you? Well, Jesus clarifies. Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. Now there's the issue. Now what are we talking about here? And this, this again gets striking. Jesus knows power has gone out from him, but he doesn't know who's touched him. Now, let me pause. Remember, we talked about how in Jesus' humanity, we've already seen Jesus learning. He grows in wisdom in chapter two. He's at the temple studying the Bible. Jesus possessed all the attributes of God, but he did not function in them. And here, I don't think this is theater. Jesus knows, we're told, one thing he knows, power went out from him. And he's asking who touched him. In fact, in Greek, the who is is masculine. He's who, who touched me? He knows that power went out from him. What, what power is this? We'll turn back to chapter 5. Luke introduced this section of, of his narrative. Verse 17. 
One of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. That's the power that's gone out from him. It's not Jesus' own personal power, but the power that is on him through the Holy Spirit. Luke links that in the Holy Spirit. Turn back to chapter 414. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. So Luke wants us to understand that all the power and the power miracles, the fuel of that power is the Holy Spirit, the power of God that is on him to heal. Now in contrast to that, we see the power of his word. He doesn't pray and ask God to raise the widow's son. He doesn't pray and ask God to stop the storm. He himself, on his own authority, because of who he is, rebukes the wind and it obeys, calls the dead son back to life for his mother. But the power that's gone out of him is the power of God. And he's aware of it. And then the text says, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Now here really, I think, is her test of faith. Remember, we've already seen the, the Gerizim's fear and their fear causes them to distance themselves from Jesus or more to the point, ask Jesus to distance himself from them. And this woman initially denies touching Jesus. She's, she's found a spot in a time when she can approach unobserved in all the crowd. She comes from behind, she touches the garment, and lo and behold, she's healed immediately. But when Jesus first stops and says, who touched me? They all, including this woman, denied it. And Jesus stops and makes it clear, no, no, we're not moving forward till I figure out who's touched me. The power has gone out from me. And the woman then, and, and notice the way Luke emphasizes this, doesn't just tell Jesus what happened, but she falls down. Here's another person falling down in front of Jesus' feet. Falls down before him. She saw that she was not hidden. She came trembling, falling down before him, and declared in the presence of all the people. And note this, not just what happened, but why. Which inevitably means admitting to her prior unclean state. She falls down in front of Jesus and says to all the people why she had touched him and how she had been made immediately well. This woman overcomes her fear. She overcomes her shame. She confesses to Jesus and all the people who she was and what she did and what happened. That's, that's the true healing of this woman, causing her faith to come out into this confession. And look what Jesus then says to her. Here's the restoration, Right? daughter. And that should ring heavy in our ears because just earlier in this chapter, if you turn back to Luke chapter 8, verse 19, his mother and his brothers came to him and they could not reach him because of the crowd. And Jesus was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Jesus has made it clear the way you become part of his family, the way you, you get his Familial love is by being a hearer and a doer of God's word. And now Jesus, this woman who's been an arm's distance from society, he fully reinstates her, calling her daughter. There's also some other irony here. What's Jesus on his way to do? Heal Jairus' daughter. And, and Jairus, we're going to see, has is, is got to be flustered by this because this delay is going to give time for Jairus' daughter to die. But here is Jesus. There's another daughter on his mind that he cares for. We're going to stop and finish her restoration. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in 
peace. That word for word after daughter is identical to what Jesus said to the woman who came in to the dinner party and weeping at his feet, either the adulteress or the prostitute. And there it's translated, your faith has saved you. That's the same, same word. It can be translated as healing or saving. You see, more important for this woman than, than simply having her medical issues cease, Jesus wants to reinstate her into fellowship and acknowledge she has fellowship with him to publicly reinstate her into the community life. And more importantly, to, to point out her faith, to call forth her faith, and to announce peace upon her. Go in peace. And get that. Jesus is saying, you, you and I are at peace. This woman's forgiven. This woman's saved. So sure, she sneaks up and touches Jesus and her medical issue is done. It's, it's completely healed. But Jesus is after far more than that. He wants her full restoration, her full healing. And so he stops. He stops. And won't move forward until he does this and, and he restores her and heals her fully. Now in doing so, Point three, we're going to look at Jesus' life-giving power. In doing so, Jairus' daughter dies. Jairus' daughter dies. And while he was still speaking, and Luke in the narrative is trying to emphasize that the very, while he's saying this to the woman, you can imagine, while he's saying, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. If you were looking at this on, on, on a movie screen or in a, in a script, the, here come the people from Jairus' house, and they're whispering in his ear, they're telling him, while he was still speaking, someone in the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. See, the assumption of these household friends or helpers is whatever help Jesus could do, whatever help Jesus might offer, now that your daughter is dead, there is no hope, there is no help. It's too late. You can only imagine the vexation you might be tempted to have, I might be tempted to have, Jairus is pleading, hurry, hurry, she's dying, she's dying, hurry, please, she's come, come. I know there's a great crowd, I know they're pressing, just come, she's dying. Then, maddeningly, Jesus stops. And not over a life or death issue, over some woman with blood. My daughter's dying. And then you hear the word. She's dead. And again, fear and faith are the issues here, because what does Jesus say to Jairus? Verse 50, Jesus on hearing this answered him, do not fear, only believe. These two stories are linked together by the emphasis on faith and believing. They're linked together by the fact that fear in various contexts can be the very thing that chokes up and challenges faith. The woman's fear of being publicly exposed, Jairus' fear that what he dreaded most had come upon him. Jesus, do not fear, only believe. Believe what? Believe that Jesus is capable to handle this. Believe that Jesus has greater power than you are willing to understand that he has. Believe that Jesus has conquered and can conquer death. Believe. Don't be afraid. Believe. And she'll be well. When he came to the house, he entered... I mean, he allowed no one to enter with him, I'm sorry, except Peter, John, and James. Now, here's the inner circle. Jesus' inner circle, frequently, they're going to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration with him. Jesus had 12 apostles, and three of them before him, his inner circle. And this is a private miracle. As I said earlier, this is a miracle primarily of compassion. This is not primarily one of Jesus' public 
demonstrations of who he is. There are some miracles, it's kind of like Jesus is, is putting out his credentials as Messiah. And that's kind of the way it functions when John the Baptist sends his messengers, right? Jesus says, um, what, what do you see me doing? Well, the, the lame are leaping, the, the blind are seeing. Go back and tell John that. I'm doing what Isaiah 61 said the Messiah would do. So go back and whatever confusion you have about why you're still sitting in jail, be certain that I am indeed Isaiah 61. And so Jesus' miracles functioned as those credentials. That's not what's going on here. Jesus is intentionally making it private. And so he pairs this down, and then we sort of get a flashback. Luke's done this earlier in the, in the narrative with the demoniac. All were weeping and mourning for her. And I don't think he means, well, Peter, James, and John, and the mother and the father. No, he first starts by showing the pairing it down. And then, in the same way that if you look, say, at the, uh, in the last encounter from last week, first in verse 37, all of the people surrounding the villages asked him to depart. So he got in the boat and returned. And then we jump back to something that obviously happened before he returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged him that he might go with them. It's the same thing going on here. Jesus pairs down the group to just his three inner circle and the mother and the father. But as apparently as they're moving through the house, the mourners are there. And Jesus speaks with confidence. He tells them, do not weep. She is not dead, but sleeping. What do they do? They laugh at him. I mean, (laughs) Jesus has done nothing but good. He's done nothing but heal. He goes to Gerizim's and he heals this man and drives thousands of demons out of him and makes him whole. And the people say, please go away. And then he comes back here and immediately there's this crowd pressing in on him and Jairus and he's going and he gets to the house and he just tells them, she, don't weep, don't weep. She's only sleeping, and they laugh. They laugh. Jesus is he's undeterred. He laughed knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, child, arise. Now, I'm going to pause. And, and the other big theme in this passage, in case you haven't noticed it, is touch. Four times in the encounter with the woman with the flow of blood. The word touch occurs. Verse 44, she came up behind and touched the fringe of his garment. Then Jesus said, who touched me? In verse 45. In verse 46, Jesus said, someone touched me. Verse 47, she fell down in the presence of all the people and told them why she had touched him and how she'd been made immediately well. Touch, touch, touch. Physical contact. And here is Jesus touching this dead girl. And again, if we're not steeped in the law, we're going to miss the significance. T- turn back to Numbers chapter 5, please. Turn back to Numbers chapter 5. Now in Numbers 5, we get the instructions, the holiness code for Israel moving through the wilderness. And if you struggle with wondering why why say the restrictions on this woman who had the flow of blood? Why would she be so excluded? Why, why would God do that? What we learn as we study the law is that one of its functions, one of the functions of the law in this whole clean and unclean aspect, this, this animal is okay to eat, this animal is unclean, is to try to communicate through a thousand different ways the holiness of God and the defiling nature of sin. Sin defiles and so through image after image after image, we, we get this picture of the defilement of sin, the exclusion of sin, that sin brings death. 
And this picture that if you want to approach God, you don't just show up any way you please. You need to be clean. And it's meant to be hard because ultimately the cleansing you and I need to approach God isn't a bath. It isn't a shower. It isn't, you know, tied extra strength. We need Jesus. And so you get this notion that to approach God is a big deal. And you've got to jump through a lot of hoops and do a lot of washings and a lot of cleansing and make sure you didn't touch this. And make sure you haven't eaten that. And then maybe, maybe, maybe you could approach only so far to the temple if you're a woman or a child, to the court of the woman and the children. If you're a Gentile, to the court of the Gentiles. If you're a man, you can go to the court of the men. The Levites could go in a little further. And amongst the Levites, only the high priest, once a year, for a few minutes, every year, could go into the Holy of Holies. You get this idea, it, God is holy, you're not. You need to be really, really clean to approach him. Now, that's part of what's to be communicated. But look at Numbers chapter 5, and look at the three people here, three types of people who are singled out excluded from the community as they travel. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. We looked at this back when we looked at Jesus cleansing the leper where again, touch is emphasized. Jesus touched the leper. And if you remember that message on contagious holiness, what we learned was if you're Jewish and you've read the law, what do you understand? What is unholy contaminates. What is, what is corrupt makes other things corrupt. That's why these people have to be removed from the camp, lest it spread, like leaven. That's another picture of sin that God gives Israel in the Old Testament. And what's amazing here, and Luke hits this triumvirate exactly, first with the leper, now with the woman with the flow of blood, and then explicitly telling us he touched a dead body does Jesus become unclean? No. His holiness and his power spreads to them. You, maybe you've heard the joke, you know, when Chuck Norris falls in the water, he doesn't get wet, the water gets Norris. It's something like that, though. Everything in Jewish sensibility is you touch the leper, his contamination spreads to you. The exact opposite happens when the leper is touched by Jesus. Jesus' holiness spreads to the leper. Jesus is touched by this woman. He doesn't even aware of it. He just knows power went out from him. He didn't even grant her request. That's how holy he is. And when we looked at this, when we looked at the the leper, we, we saw that there's only one thing, two things in the Old Testament that have this feature, this, this contagious holiness. And it's the altar on which the sin offering is made and it's the sin offering itself. Listen to this from Exodus 29, 36 to 37. And every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it. You shall anoint it and consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it. The altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. The altar on which the sacrifices is made, once it's been, once it's been sanctified, anything it touches it, becomes holy. And then in Leviticus 6, the sin offering. This is the law for the sin offering in the place where the burnt offering for sin is made. You shall kill, the offering is killed, shall be the sin offering, be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it shall, for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten. In the court of the tent of meeting, whatever touches its flesh shall be made holy. So the Old Testament law gives us those two things are the only things in the Old Testament law that have this notion of you touch them, you become holy. The altar and the sin offering itself. And the book of Hebrews tells us 
Jesus is the altar the sacrifice is made on. Jesus is the sacrifice that is given to God. And Jesus has this type of holiness that he can touch a leper and he doesn't become leprous, the leper becomes holy. A woman with a flow of blood can touch him. He doesn't become unclean, she becomes clean. And now he reaches out and takes this dead girl by the hand. Which again, any Jewish person is gonna shrink back. You touched a dead body, Jesus. Well, does he get corrupted? No, she gets life. But taking her by the hand, he called saying, child, arise. Her spirit returned and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. Her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened takes the girl's hand and calls her back to life. And, and Luke's telling is explicit in the order. He picks up her hand, she's dead. There's no confusion there. He's touching a dead body. Is it possible she's just in a coma or unconscious or swooned? Again, Luke's language is emphatic. Her spirit returned. Okay? There's no mistake. She's dead. He touches her. And by the power, he doesn't pray and ask God to do anything. By his own power of his own word, the word that commands demons, the word that commands the wind and the waves, the same word that rebuked a fever in Peter's mother-in-law, that same word, child arise. The author of life grants life. And the girl sits up at once, at once. Jesus takes the girl's hand and calls her back to life. And then Jesus strictly tells them not to tell anyone. This is just an act of compassion. This is just because Jesus, I am believing the same way that he felt compassion for the widow, felt compassion for Jairus. And he, Jesus is not a respecter of persons. Jesus has compassion for this synagogue ruler, this man in society who'd be esteemed. Jesus also stops because there's another daughter he's concerned about, this outcast, this woman. We talked about how sin is, a, is, is pictured in the Old Testament law. And the two consequences of sin are what we see here, defilement and exclusion and death. So your sin has separated you from God, right? Your sin separates you. You're excluded from God because of your sin. And your sin, the wages of sin is death. And so vividly, the law portrays these realities. And so th these two women, this young girl, the woman with the flow of blood, picture that. And we see Jesus' power to overcome that. This woman had a, a fountain welling within her that constantly defiled her. She couldn't stop it. No amount of washing or cleansing would stop it. Constantly contaminating her. And, and who here would deny that in, in your and my heart that same fountain springs up, defiling, defiling, defiling. John Calvin I have it on one of my little onesies for, for, for Zadok. I think he's outgrown it. Every one of us from his mother's womb, our hearts are a factory of idols. Because we have that same fountain coming up within us. And, and Jesus has the holiness and the power to cleanse us. Jesus has the power and the holiness to, to overcome that. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And we were all born dead in our trespasses and sins. Yet while we were yet dead, Christ died for us. And so vividly shown here, the two major consequences of sin, the exclusion and the defiling and death, Jesus powerfully overcomes.
And, and inserted in this is the call to faith. The praising of the woman, your faith has saved you, and, and the words to Jairus, only believe. And I think what Luke is showing Theophilus and us is that no matter how defiled we are, no matter how unclean we are, no matter how rightly we ought to be excluded, and no matter how dead your heart may be, if you can turn to him, if you can only believe, if you can overcome that fear, you too can be made whole, you too can be cleansed, you too can be given life. We've gone over our time, so let's just close the word of prayer, but it's just my prayer that, that all of us would believe this about Jesus. This is our Savior. This is how great and how powerful he is. Let's pray. Lord God, just praise you. Praise you that your son is this compassionate and this caring and this powerful and this mighty to save that though our sins are as a scarlet, you can wash them away white as snow. Jesus doesn't become contaminated by us, but his holiness spreads to us. And Lord, we are dead. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. And through Christ, you give us life. He has conquered death. He has conquered sin. And now he sits at the right hand of God the Father. So Lord God, I just pray that you'd grant us faith, that you would grant us to believe, that we might experience this cleansing, that we might experience this life. In Jesus' name, amen.